welcome to Brisk on Fireside's Summer Sessions. Uh, while Abby and I work on season two for release later this year, um, the Summer Sessions is a, a mini kind of bonus uh, bonus episode season uh, that we hope will ground uh, the summertime for our audience. Uh, the Summer Sessions will be the same great conversations around a virtual fireside about God, the earth, the universe, and everything, but with more of those good summertime vibes. You, Karen and Danielle, you guys are the editors for the book um, forthcoming from the Tory House Press called Blossom as the Cliff Rose, Mormon Legacies and the Beckoning Wild, um, which is a fantastic title, by the way. Um, can you give us a little bit of an intro uh, to, to, to who you are and how you came about this project? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go ahead and start. And thank you, Madison and Abigail, for um, inviting us to do this podcast as um, part of your, your program. We were, this started as a conversation between Karen, myself, and Kirsten, the, the publisher of Tory House Press, talking about the fact that, 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 there, is, um, that there, there is a background or there, there are advocates for the environment within the Mormon religion, within the Mormon church, but we don't hear those voices very often. And so we talked about how, um, you know, would it be possible to put together um, a collection that would bring those voices together from a variety of perspectives. So that was kind of the, the, the starting point for the piece. And then Karen was the one who, after much, much um, <laughs> going back and forth and drafting, she's the one that came up with the fabulous title, the fabulous title for the anthology. Well, we talked about it and talked about it and we had it out on the phone and we were really weren't getting anywhere. And then as soon as we hung up, then then the title showed up. So, you know, that's kind of how, how these things work, I guess. We had talked to Kirsten. We were in uh, Cedar City um, with a Utah Humanities reading um, hosted by SUU. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like a sort of a casual conversation between the three of us. And I kind of wrote it off as a joke or sort of a good idea or something that would yeah, sure. I think about doing that sometime. And then, and then Kirsten wrote to both of us and said, I mean it, <laughs> I really would like to do this. And, and it, it shook me up a little bit. I, I think I had seen it as, yeah, maybe a sort of future possible project. But um, when, when Kirsten really reiterated it a few weeks later, I, I realized that it had been on my mind a lot. And I had a lot of writers and people in mind who I really thought would be a pleasure to contact. And we got together and made a list of people we'd really like to track down and invite to contribute to the anthology and then ask them as well to, to pass the word along to anybody they thought might be interested in that. So some of the submissions and some of the authors were people that we really had sought out and gone after. And then quite a few others really showed up, um, in our inboxes as a, I don't know, just felt like gifts, just something that came out of the universe. And then they were, it was, it was really a pleasure to see how warm and how ready the response was to our call. There were a lot of people ready to write about this subject. I think that's what impressed me was how organically the anthology came together because as pieces began to show up, our initial intention or ideas about that anthology began to shift because of the stories that were coming forward. And it became, it became um, as much about the concept of what does the environment mean and how, how is it that being informed by the Mormon experience, wherever that came through in one's life, 
how did that give you, how did they give one a sense of a connection to the natural world? That was the starting point for our idea. But the stories that emerged were, were so layered and complex in that relationship, both to the religion and to the land and to their experience and to their identity, that the pieces, the anthology began to be multi-layered in its, in its approach to connection to land. So that was what surprised us. And then discovering new writers um, through recommendations of other writers was also such a pleasure. Yeah, no, I uh, just perusing the author, the contributor list that there are some of the, your contributors we've had on Briscoe and Firesides already uh, from George Hanley to Catherine Knight Sontag. And actually, Eric Jepson is going to have a bonus episode forthcoming uh, that he sent us so that it feels like we're already part of the family. <laughs> yeah, there were there were a lot of oh, and we really did want to. um you know, make a call to people who are committed to this particular genre and this subject matter. Uh, but there are also a lot of authors in this anthology who really don't see themselves as as Mormon per se. Um, and a lot of people who probably wouldn't have answered a standard call um, with, with with those kinds of terms or those 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 kinds of questions, we wrote we were very very careful in composing um, a call for specifically and generally what we wanted because we really wanted it to include um, people who have been profoundly affected by Mormon experience or ancestry and and remind me and I'll talk about why we chose to use the word Mormon specifically, mm-hmm. although it's a little bit of a of a difficult term right now. Um, but there, there really were, were a lot of, of people outside of that sort of stand, I don't, I don't mean standard, but practiced and committed and names that, that, that often are recognized within this particular frame of reference. Uh, we really wanted to reach to writers who, who knew we wanted their voices and we wanted their experience. Um, and in, in that sense, I know there are lots of different ways that that we know our writers or that we admire people's work, but my many, many years of teaching at Utah Valley University has meant that I have read hundreds of spectacular writers and, and people really finding their voices outside of clean categories of Mormon heritage or Mormon culture or Mormon belief. Um, we're just a bit on the margin outside of the sort of center of, you know, Utah Valley's Mecca for LD, for Latter-day Saint students. And so we get the, we get a lot of people with relationships to the Latter-day Saint church, but with very different ones and very different relations and attitudes and perspectives and um, distances and proximities to the, to the mainstream church and that. And because of that, we really wanted to emphasize if you have been touched by this culture, if you have ancestry, if you have been converted or deconverted, we, we, we weren't looking necessarily for necessarily only for believers, but for people who had been affected in some way or another in, in ways that made them who they were and established a relationship to 
to the bigger natural world. And I think also what um, in our call, we made it clear that we were looking for a spectrum in terms of faith, in terms of belief, and that there was room for both, you know, that spectrum of voices. Yeah, we made it clear we weren't necessarily looking for, for example, people like me, I'm deeply genetically, <laughs> I guess, Latter-day Saint, um, in, in the sense of, we, we, but we weren't looking for pioneer stories per se. We weren't looking for um, anything that maybe we might see as the standard tropes. So when some of the standard tropes did come up about Mormon ancestry or about ancestors who crossed the, you know, crossed the continent or people who'd farmed or homesteaded, one of the things that was so striking about those stories is that they took on a very different tone and a very different perspective. And they were analytical or they were idiosyncratically responsive. Um, so even, even the tropes that we sort of expected came to us almost unanimously in wonderfully surprising ways, really distinct to the authors, distinct to the experience. Yeah, I love that story that Danielle, you start off with um, of your ancestor um, who, you know, has that that tragic experience of going missing right after um, she she walks down the hill with her son um, and, yeah. and that that is the last time she's seen. And I feel like that's a perfect way of kind of introducing all of the different contributors to the book, even, um, you know, and the, and the varying faith perspectives that they have. Um, you know, and the relationship between her faith um, and her husband's faith and that kind of spectrum that they span um, and, and how those two experiences differ. Um, do you mind kind of relating that story here um, in a little bit greater depth um, and then kind of describing why you you chose to include that story? Um, because like Karen said, you know, it's not not it's a little atypical um, or at least uh varying than than some of the other pioneer stories that we hear. Yes, um, I'll be glad to. Yeah, it, it is. That's a story that's been carried down, obviously, through cousins. And, and so it's it's a it's a haunting story. But I've heard it since I was little. Um, the, the grandmother who I, you know, and at first it was, she just was tired and she walked back East, you know, <laughs> and we were like, <laughs> she just got tired of this trek and she's going back home to England. And it kind of represented this very strong matriarchy that I come from in terms of my, on my mother's side, nine aunts um, and, and sort of this powerful female voice in, for Mormonism for me, but also a haunting. So I was always struck by Mary Clement Blue's essay and her notion of the beckoning shapes. And when I began to think more about this ancestor, um, I believe it was in part because of the mystery that the fact that we'll never know, we don't know what happened. So it's it's this unfinished story and this mysterious story. And that, so it, it's a compelling story in that way. And then as I began to read more about her life, I was not as much aware of the real tension until I read a little bit of a biography of her posted by another um, relative, I believe, um, about, about the, their life in England. And the extent to which she had to give up so much to travel um, 
and also and where they came from, the land that they came from. And her, I believe it's my on maybe it's on the on the grandfather's on the the, uh, the her husband's side that some of them were connected to the Lake District. And so even the oldest son, they asked you know him to or one of the children, they said, why don't you stay here? And of course, he wasn't going to do that. He was going to go go on with his track. So so I, I feel like that was a story that um, in many ways is symbolic of how if you are coming from a pioneer ancestry, there's a homeland that's always been left behind because you're not, this is not your original home. The West is not your original home. And so that that kind of having two places in mind, it's something that I personally write about also. It's, it's something I'm, I'm aware, I'm connected to as well, but, but, but I think it's a part of our psyche in terms of um, some of the, the pioneer ancestry there. But then there's also the notion of displacement as well, that the land that was here is changed because of the pioneers um, arriving here. So that was um, that was how I thought that it that it. I, I think I was drawn to the story, and I just started with that story, and then the essay developed from there into um, into the direction that it did. You know, there's also a piece of that pioneer story that always strikes me. Um, I mean, this sort of big trope, monolithic cycle of, of these uh, of these of these European conversions and and immigrations. And and so many of these stories sort of originate with a very, very angry original family and with uh, sort of banishments or disowning. And, you know, a lot of stories about once they leave their home in Europe, they never see their families again or they've been cut off. Um, I think it's actually really intriguing because I learned, I heard that kind of story so many times. And I, I it gets told as now that you're here and your ancestors got, you know, suffered through so much, you'd better be loyal and you'd better stay here and you'd better see yourself. It's almost like an enforced home kind of a story. You'd better be here. And I think part of the story that doesn't get analyzed quite as much is that sort of ongoing sense of a lot of people at least relate to those stories as banished children and as lost children or as children who've been cut off. And yet it's also a story about, but you guys better stay here or we'll throw you out. And they're, they're in, in, in an interesting way, there's a, there's, there's always sort of a lost generation story to the Mormon, to the Mormon tale that I think a lot of, and I say children, but, children of these stories grow up with a great deal of sense of if they aren't perfectly loyal, they'll also be cast out from their families. They'll be sent out for disloyalty. And I think there's that space of storytelling and a space of sort of silence for a lot of, a lot of people who were raised with this, a lot of people who love their families, their landscape, their heritage, but have not fulfilled the story in quite the ways that their families have expected them to, who feel cut off from their own ability to tell that story, who have been disowned from that story in a certain way. And, and it's created a pocket of silence, but an also a pocket of language that again, I think really comes through in this particular collection. A lot of people 
who claim their families, who claim their heritage, who claim their relationships to a very, very complex Western phenomenon and religious movement, but aren't exactly, you know, queer children, for example, um, apostate families and apostate children, people who move on to other beliefs and philosophies. And also there's this really, really powerful answer from people who tell stories. Uh, and, and I was abjectly grateful, for example, for the Native American writers who answered and from the people who were here on this continent and greeted those European settlers in incredibly complex ways. Many who have also been deeply, deeply touched and deeply affected and raised under Latter-day Saint influence. And to hear those stories and hear those answers really extends that pioneer story as well. And that it, so much of it gets reiterated as kind of nuclear family dissolution, recreation, reinvention, but I think that story gets played out again, generation after generation with a certain kind of deep reverberation um, as, as, as a, again, as a Mormon cultural trope, as a legacy of this particular, of, of those pioneer stories. Um, the other people who have been affected and answered to that story in different ways, we really, really did want to, we wanted to, we wanted to invite those voices. Yeah, no, I, that's something that I immediately sensed when I uh, started reading the book was that this is probably, this is a unique collection, um, within the kind of the Mormon publishing world, right. That, uh, I'm not aware of, of many other anthologies of essays and poetry that, that, that draw so widely from such a diverse Mormon audience or Mormon, um, Mormon, uh, community, right. That there are queer people who have submitted things to this book. There are people who are super active who have submitted things to this book. There are people who are not active at all who, but I, what I love is that you've, you've kind of used Mormonism as a cultural identity rather than rather than just the, the being a Mormon is much bigger than just your, your membership in an institution. Right. I've joked before in, in earlier in the season that it, Mormonism has everything to do with construction on a 15 and, uh, and jello, uh, that <laughs> as, that as much as it, you know, it does with our membership to this, this religious community as well. Um, and I hadn't made the connection yet, um, until just what you were, you were talking about how that our pioneer ancestry, um, like it's lodged in our, in our, like uh, almost a, a generational trauma of disconnection from land because they, everyone left their homes to come to the United States. And then we know we left Missouri to go to Kirtland, Ohio. And then we left, or maybe I'm getting this wrong, but we left like New York to go to Missouri, to go to Ohio. And then we ended up fleeing out, out West. Right. And then we, then we propagated that same, that same, uh, uh, that same trauma onto the indigenous peoples who are already here. But there's this, this almost traumatic disconnection from place, uh, baked into our, into our, souls and our genetics as a community. Um, and you can almost see some of that same anxieties, uh, in, in, uh, in our own people that we have anxiety about being with our own families forever in, into the eternities, right? That it's this past thing and it's also this future thing. Um, and, uh, but I'm very interested because the whole, one of the premises of this book is that 
the wilderness, the desert wilderness of the West is something that the Mormon imagination has just latched onto. What is it about the experience of the desert wilderness that has lodged itself in the Mormon imagination? I, I want to answer that a little bit, but I, I also just really quickly want to make sure yeah, that, that I'm including that, 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 that I mentioned that there are several pieces here that don't speak directly of the desert West. I'm thinking particularly of, of a beautiful essay by Sarah Newcomb, who um, writes about her sort of repatriation with her Simchian family in Alaska Um Raised Mormon, raised all over the continent, uh, raised in a lot of motion, but and in that sense, cut away from her original native family and native tribe, um, a group that she belonged to as a child, and then felt estranged from for a very, very long time. And that, and so her return is actually away from the continent, the, the larger continent, and away from the sort of latter-day saint culture that she that she and, and and her her return is back to something more original in the in the in the northwest and that. so it i i'm a i love the west and i love writing about the west and the great basin is is of course at the heart of this sort of strange cultural bond that i think the mormon people feel in such powerful and also sometimes in such uncomfortable and disturbing ways on that. Um, I mentioned a little bit in Daniel's, in an excerpt or a piece of Daniel's introduction that we named the book Blossom as the Cliff Rose because the Cliff Rose is the absolutely astoundingly beautiful native flower of, of a place that originally European and Eastern Anglo people who came here with Mormon migration saw as, at least keep reiterating as barren desert. And it was not beautiful until, until they got there. And it wasn't beautiful until it was sort of raised by the hand of God and water and all of that stuff. Um, uh, Writers like, for example, Jared Farmer really have shut down that myth that the great basin was, just a barren desert where no one could inhabit. The Western Shoshone people, the Paiute people could live quite well with an incredible knowledge of native plants and native flora, you know, in places now that are almost uninhabitable. As soon as, as soon as the Mormons brought cattle, (laughs) the desert was annihilated, you know, in, in, in ways that, that at least, the people who had lived here, it made it complete. It, it starved them slowly. It, it was horrific. And yet that sort of barrenness becomes a point of pride and a point of see we're tough enough to be able to handle this. So I, I think there's a, there's a love-hate relationship with the West and a love-hate relationship with the sort of desert environment of the Great Basin among sort of people who compare their, who, who need to measure their strength, I guess, and their resilience and their calling against, you know, say that this is the place that we could live when no one else could do that. That It's a myth. And it's in many ways, a very damaging lie. Um, and yet you can document through literature, through journals, through accounts. Juanita Brooks talks about this quite a bit in many of the journals that she traces the gradual sort of conversion of these Eastern eyes to the stunning beauty of the landscapes that they were traveling through. Um, 
in many ways, the imperative to tame those landscapes meant, look how beautiful it is, but let's hurry up and change it and alter it. But there's also finally just a place where the power of the landscape itself, I think, just overtook the people who lived in it, who burned up in it, who saw the stars in it, who walked through it, who found, who did find water in it, who admired the cities that other people had built thousands of years before. The stark and lush beauty of this landscape, I think changed a people who saw land, who saw beauty in very, very different ways before they came here. And it's, I, I see this in probably all of us who now grow up here. I see it in my students. I certainly saw it in my children. That moment where the beauty of this place just sort of takes over you, goes into your cell structure and you're, you're screwed for life because <laughs> now this is where you live. <laughs> this is where you are and this is where we belong or at least where we desperately want to belong. And I think um, there is that notion that uh, in the Old Testament, which is very prevalent in the Mormon religion, that the desert is symbolic of so many things, um, symbolic of, of desolation, spirituality, sacredness. And I've often wondered, like, what if the beach had been our motif instead? <laughs> like, I know. Mm. What if the coast had been, been what we focus on instead of the desert? Because because um, the desert, it, it, there is a sense of, of either, either you are you you will survive in it, or it will not, or you will not survive in it. It is not a place that is friendly to human inhabitants, and in, in, I mean in general terms, just the, the extreme desert. And so I think that there's um, there is a sense of, I mean it's hard to imagine when you look at Salt Lake now. And going back, and I remember when I would visit Provo and they, the nonstop water fountains <laughs> that were in downtown Salt Lake, <laughs> almost like this water is, is you know, we, this will never run out. And there was sort of a defiance, I think, in having those, that, that kind of water fountain running the way that it was. Um, it's hard to imagine maybe how, how individuals first saw this, but I think that there are poems as I, or, and pieces in this anthology that really push back against that idea that it was a desolate place, that no, this is, this is not desolate. It is, it is a homeland. It was a homeland. It has always been a homeland and it is not the wilderness. And so. so and, I, it was not, and it was not created by the Mormon migration, not, not remotely that this right. has outlasted and changed it. And in that sense, if there's anything good that, that sort of creates an arc in this is that it has changed a people uh, at least a little bit um, of people who, who were intent on changing the landscape. Something happened also to the people who were trying to change it. Um, we're hoping maybe we could keep that change going a little bit more because as much as we love the idea that we can survive in the desert, most of us live in homes and, air conditioning and <laughs> fight it and, and, and resist it in multiple ways. So um, I think we're still in the throes of collision of European values, of Anglo values, of the Eastern East coast sense of, as been said so many times, scenery is greenery. Um, 
the only really great place in the desert is where we put a great big reservoir and we can bring our boats. I mean, there, there's a lot of contradiction and a lot of paradox, of course. And there's a lot of paradox even in what it means to walk into the desert and spend, you know, for all of us to get converted to the desert and camp out there isn't all that great of an idea either. I mean, <laughs> it's a very, very complex issue. And this love of land can't, I don't think can be pure. And I don't think there's much in the anthology that really is just plain pure. See this wonderful wilderness and it gives us God and God chose us. Uh, there's a powerful, powerful understanding, I think, across the whole range of these writers that it's far more complex than that. And our love is profoundly unresolved and in many ways damaging. Yeah. Yeah, just to bring up a point from one of your contributors, I remember reading an essay by George Hanley um, where he talks about, you know, and and him having grown up on the East Coast and then having traveled to the West Coast and eventually um, landing himself in Utah, but writing about how we kind of have this obsession with green um, and, and uh, green as being healthy or green as being um, kind of representative of, of nature and wilderness. Um, but that's not what you see when you come to Utah. Um, and that we kind of need to dispel that notion is necessarily being, um, what represents nature, wilderness, or, um, environment in general. Um, and I just kept thinking that as I was reading through and, and even your, um, essay, Danielle, and in your experience first coming to Utah as well, um, that the, that these landscapes change, that they're not, you know, unilateral um, and unilaterally representative of uh, nature as as just a single color or a single landscape or or even, you know, a single kind of um, group of species that exist, um, that it can look like anything, even even this quote unquote barren landscape here in Utah. So. Um, I just appreciated those kind of inclusive uh, notions of, of Utah's being still wild and wilderness and, and beautiful, despite um, maybe some of the the more widely accepted notions of what, what makes something a beautiful landscape. And I think also what's interesting is where there are places where you've got two people of different cultures coming to the same place and it means completely different things to them. There is one sense of, um, I think it's in Lynn McArthur's essay where she is not, the, the, the speaker just is not aware the depth that the, that the, um, the, 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 the Diné individual, the depth with which that Diné individual interprets that landscape compared to what she brings, but to, compared to what she is not, you know, that she's um, clueless, I guess, just unaware about. And so I think that's also interesting about, about this is that you can, you can be in one place and you only have your set, your lens through which to see it. And if you can see that place, then if you have other writers coming through or other stories coming through, and you begin to see that same place from, a, from that layered perspective, then I think that what you were saying, Karen, when you said the, the landscape changes people, I think we, we do get changed when we begin to understand that landscape through other people's eyes. 
and that's that is, I believe, one of the the powerful aspects of the anthology. Um, Juanita Brooks transcribed a lot of original journals, and she transcribed them word by word by word, and mistake by mistake, error by error. She just was a fanatic about faithfulness. She um, made a really interesting comment about all the times that she had read about how much hard work it was to get from one place to another or how hard someone worked or unplowed ground or something of the kind. And then she said once in a while she would get these just bursts of really surprising exclamations from people who were very tired of landscape. They'd been trekking the continent. They went from place to place. And I mean, it, travel was incredibly difficult. It felt like nothing but raw, open, endless landscape to so many of these European immigrants or even American immigrants who came from the East. And then she said once in a while she'd get this burst of just absolute shock and joy from someone who just said and then we came over the ridge and it was so beautiful and then these very very careful descriptions of what it actually looked like and she said for for so much of this landscape to be able to affect these hardened tired people who saw it as their job to go conquer this landscape she said she she, she really kind of learned to watch for those and I, I was really struck by that in fact one she'd mentioned was about her own great-grandmother coming over the point of the mountain and seeing Utah Valley there in, in, in front of her and just, just exclaiming at the stunning beauty and verdance of that valley. And that I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by that because I grew up in Utah Valley and it seems like we set about destroying that beauty as in, in just as fiercely as we possibly could for many, many years um, in, a, in a valley that probably ranks above right there among some of the most stunning landscapes on this, on this continent. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I really wanted to flatten that. Yeah. I, if I share the same sentiment that every time I drive South around the point of the mountain and I, cause I grew up in Provo, right? So I grew up right there in the heart of the, of the Valley. But every time I, I come up around the point of the mountain and look down into Utah Valley is just, is it's breathtaking. I love that Valley with every, every bit of me. I, and I'm not that crazy about it anymore. I'm yeah. I'm a little more cynical in certain <laughs> ways, but, you know, which is again one of the reasons it surprises me sometimes when I you know round that valley and you know go down that way to visit my mother, and that um, you know I, I actually think there is something in our our ancestors, and I mean ours as in mine again, immigrant through and through. For being a, a non-believer and no longer Mormon, I I'm I have the most I have the most Mormon in me. I think <laughs> of I know. Um, but there's something I think in some ways some of these places were so beautiful and so stunning and so overwhelming. I think for very practical, very pragmatic people who are also sort of contending with the implications of displacing other people and justifying it, I think. Um, a lot of our original development, especially as we really kind of uh, along the Wasatch Front, was actually de designed to, to to shut our eyes to the beauty. I think it was just almost too much for an awful lot of people who 
wanted to get on with their lives, maybe didn't want to be inspired by beautiful landscapes, um, maybe didn't want to be, I mean, I don't know, but I'd put too much pain and sorrow into it, whatever it is, but the determined quality of overdeveloping um, the Wasatch Front without, without much concern at all about what that landscape actually was or how it might interact. And that we still see that, that, that conflict. And I think as that sort of big landscape of my childhood as really has slipped away within so many of our memories, maybe there's a change of heart, you know, maybe there's a, at a certain point, a place where one says it's, it's not too late. I don't know. I hope we do. I really do because there's a. Well, I think we've reached a critical point in our, in our own existence where, where we no longer, there's, there's not that the, we, we, there's not regardless of one's, theology or belief within the Mormon religion, I don't think that we can, that anybody can say it is not a problem right now to address environmentalism, to address how is the land treated, overdevelopment, um, water issues, all of those need, you know, should be addressed. And I believe there's, there are organizations that are beginning to look at that more closely and, and I think it's important for us to remember, we're not just talking about the big sweeping deserts or the national parks or the BLM or the places we can still go. The Wasatch Front was the heart of the beauty of the Mormon kingdom and, and all of the mythology and all of the stories and tropes of coming out to the wilderness and whatever truths and harms and virtues those stories had they are they are at stake in this. So I think many of us who have inherited this legacy in any way look at the Wasatch Front as really the question about who we are as a people, who we are as a culture, what it means to inherit this legacy, and look at a landscape that that shows us we are still profoundly conflicted and profoundly in love with the stories of nature, but still don't quite not know what to do with our actual environment. And I, I, like Danny said, I think, I think it's reaching a visual crisis that um, either means we'll, we'll abandon it completely because it's just too painful to keep looking back or we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Fingers better. crossed. <laughs> Um, so I, uh, I wanted to be sure that we touched on, so we already kind of related at the beginning, how this anthology draws from a very diverse, uh, background of people, cultural Mormons, um, whether or not their, you know, their affiliation with the church, uh, you know, is, or whatever, regardless of what their affiliation with the church is, um, that I, that's something that I, uh, you know, we were talking kind of in some of our, our pre-conversation that the book feels like a little bit like a, like a stage play almost that people come up to the, to the stage and that they, they give their piece and then they will go back into the, into the audience and someone else will come up from with a completely different perspective. It's almost like almost a testimony meeting <laughs> a little bit. Um, uh, and I think what, what I really like about the book, um, and that's something that I try and, or me and Abby try and model on this podcast is that there are circles of belonging that are bigger and more inclusive that I think, um, 
that we, we need to rest in and lean into. Um, and so I think that what I've, what I've seen this book is that the circle of belonging that obviously, you know, we're on Briscoe and firesides and we, we love the earth. And they also, this book is about the wilderness is that that circle of belonging that's big enough to hold us all, uh, despite our various, our diverse backgrounds is, is this landscape. It's landscape itself that can hold us together. Do you guys, can you guys speak to that at all? Yeah, I think that um, yes, I, I I do think that if you look at this, if you look at the collection, we have individuals who trace. You know, the the, the, the Idaho landscape is part of where they come from. California, um, there's there's uh, the Utah landscape. There are people who are from the east coming into the west. People from the west traveling to to the east, and so each of and and yet that landscape is significant to them in part because of the the stories again that come. To, that come with that, whether it's stories of the ranching stories or um, indigenous people or whatever, however they might connect to it. So I think that that is that sort of a, I guess the hub and spoke, the hub and spoke aspect of the collection, or that idea of um, of coming forward and telling. Like it, I mean, to me, that testimony meeting is a nice and nice. Uh, kind of an interesting metaphor uh, because you never know <laughs> what you're going to hear <laughs> on any given Sunday. And so, you know, and so you've got, you know, so, so I think that to me is what's the nice surprising turns about this collection as you'll finish one piece and then you'll go to another and you'll, and, and there's a sense of, Oh, similar place, but different story, similar experience, but different story. And, so, so that, so the, but the landscape is what kind of ties it together, however we are viewing that. And I think going back to that idea of what happened when, you know, individuals first come to this desert, how do they respond to it? If there's a story of trauma as the one pioneer ancestor that I talk about, those children would have been traumatized by that event. And so they probably carried with them that homeland of England in their minds lost their mother before they ever even settled here. So the beauty of the landscape, probably whether it unfolded to them or not, I think just that trauma would have been forefront to them understanding or interpreting the landscape after that. Whereas there's the other grandfather that I mentioned, the great grandfather who came across when he was 10 and thought it was the most fun thing a boy could do to sleep out under the stars, to see the animals. It was just, a, it was a, you know, exciting. And I think he carried that with him through his interpretation of the natural world. So, so I think in some ways, um, how th there's various aspects of, um, of ex what, you know, your experience, is it one of being, of feeling secure or is it one of feeling displaced? And if you're, if that security is there, then, then, there's maybe you see it in a different way. If it's displacement or loss, then that landscape's going to have a different message to you. It'll have a different a different resonance for you. Karen, any thoughts? What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was kind of this this idea that while um, we all uh, come, you know, a different we all we all have different. Uh, you know, affiliation levels with the church that is kind of our religious affiliations. Right. Um, but that somehow 
we can all be here together uh, in this conversation about the earth, about the landscape, and uh, that something me and Abby try to work on hard with this podcast is that your 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 affiliation with the church is kind of secondary to your willingness to be here and be engaged in these environmental issues and to to be part of that conversation. And that the you know if we're going to talk about circles of belonging, I think that the the circle of belonging that I think we need to lean into and rest in is that being the landscape and the landscape is big enough to hold us all together, regardless of our religious affiliations, right? That even though we, we are all Mormon by, by genetics and it's in our bones on some level, our, our affiliation with the church is almost secondary to our, our love of this landscape. I, I, I think that's true to a certain point. I, I think we can, um, but I, I'm not sure we're a majority, you know, thinkers <laughs> sure. on this uh, <laughs> which was which really drove us and really made us think i mean this was a, actually a more i think danny can back me up on this one at, at certain points this was a really traumatic project for both of us for different reasons and and it pushed us both to encounter other people's stories and of course feel responsible for them and feel responsible for bringing them forward and that but but I, I guess maybe one of the ways I would answer your your statement is that, yeah, I think in some ways the fracturing that maybe all of us to a certain point have experienced as what we, what at least we were taught was a unified culture and a sort of a monolithic identity. We're too far from that period and too far from that particular cultural encounter and trauma or group experience, as much as we grew up with pioneer stories, we're too far away from that now to, to be all that unified. And the, and the, the divisions within Mormon inflected culture are actually quite huge. You know, I mean, there are certain groupings of from, from the outside, maybe, you know, and, and of course we've all experienced these in frustrating ways um, from the outside. Oh, I know what you are. And yeah, you think you're different, but you're not, but, but inside of this culture, we know there are some really, really powerful differences. The, you know, there've been some, some terrible rifts over issues of, of queer families, for example, queer children and parents about relationships, even within, you know, sort of unified families, there still is an unspoken and yet spoken again and again. And Danny and I really saw this. The native people who lived here, the indigenous people who lived in these places still live right here among us and share the same history. And when I say among us, I mean among all of us as Utahns, all of us as Great Basin inhabitants, all of us as, as Americans. And I haven't seen a lot of places where people who talk about their Mormon ancestry and colonial history are speaking alongside and right next to Native people who have very, very similar histories, but were, you know, pushed over on the other side or divided or treated or suffered in very, very different ways. And because of that, I think there are a lot of very identifiable groups or factions or subcultures or whatever we want to say, who live in so-called Mormon territory now, who don't know how to speak to each other who don't speak among each other, who don't turn to the side, who don't speak in the same collections, anthologies, meetings. And in that sense, 
to say, you know, the landscape unites us all kind, well, kind of, but we really had to dig to find that. And of course, we know that even with this anthology, we're not really, this is not really going to hit mainstream institutional Mormon reading circles. And so I, I think one of the reasons the landscape is so powerful and it keeps striking me is it might be at least somewhere way, way back or really down on the ground, the thing that lets us turn and speak to each other again and speak in some kind of meaningful, united, recognizable way. And it's not like I'm looking for a big, happy family reunion. I'm kind of way past that. But I, I would like to claim what I have in common deeply and profoundly in relation to this landscape to, with my Mormon Idaho farmer cousins who live very differently on the landscape than I do and who see my environmentalism as a, as a, as a travesty, as a, as a terrible, as a disgusting, appalling, you know, I actually think we do have the land in common and we have so much love for place in common. We have so much similar eyes for, for the sweep of a mountain range, you know, but we don't, we don't talk to each other. And it's right now in many ways, philosophically, it's the landscape that divides us. And it makes me um, a traitor or some kind of betrayer or something of the kind to say, we need to think differently about this landscape than we have. That I, I actually think we have a long way to go. And I'm not positive that, that saying, well, the landscape unites us all and is gonna make things okay. Maybe it will, but we're gonna have to go we're going to have to to reach for those roots in very very different ways than we have so far and i think that is part of our purpose is how do we translate this ancient genetic bodily molecular love of this landscape into something that's future instead of foregone past because if we bring, keep bringing our past back to this landscape in the ways we have, we'll, we will lose it. We'll, we'll drive it into genuine destruction. We're, we're too committed to overwatering. We're too committed to, to building. We're too committed to building churches and houses and subdivisions and colleges <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. I, I, I don't know what the answers are, but somewhere I do think it is what we have in common across all of our differences in whatever we might call Mormon culture. But I think it's going to remain very, very, very hard to define in something that feels like a particularly heartwarming testimony meeting. I, I think testimony meeting is a long way off if we're all going to sit together <laughs> and understand each other. I think, Karen, one thing you touched on, which I think is so important, is the idea of listening, because so often when one does share a story that is not within and, you know, maybe a, a recognized or familiar trope, mm -hmm. the response is a silenced stare, is a silenced yeah. stare. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think that when, when we can listen, what just, just being listened to right there is a is a step toward that that continuity. Yeah, and we are a testimonial. Having the story immediately mm -hmm. discounted or or 
or not responded to. You know, yeah. With that, we're, with, with we're so familiar with the idea of, of our personal narratives, telling our stories and then seeing what we learn and know and love as a result of that story. And yet it still does still have to be the official story. And and I'm I'm willing to say it has to be the official story on the on the apostate side, on the heretic side, on the liberal side, on the conservative side, on the you know, in many ways there's still, you know, there's still sort of a, a camp and we tell our stories, but they have to have the same, in some ways they have to have the same reassuring moral. And we've got to break, we've got to break those stories open. We're such good storytellers. We're such good testimony bearers. We're such good witnesses, but there's a line that's very, very hard to cross. And we really did try to cross some of that in, in this book to, to ask our writers to, to make themselves vulnerable. In fact, we sent several manuscripts back and said, everybody else who's contributed here has put themselves on the line in some way or another. You know, can you, can you risk a little bit more? And gosh, they delivered <laughs> so beautifully. I think it's also interesting, um, and I'm getting a sense, too, of um, how land kind of stands as an allegory for the church as well, um, that the land has experienced so much trauma in the shift that's happened, both with the arrival of the pioneers um, and expelling, you know, the Native peoples who were here before that, and and kind of our continued, um, to what we've alluded to, the, this continued changing and, and developing of this land. Um, but that that also exists within the church. Um, and so, you know, we get this, this changing of the church and, and changing of the peoples within the church. Um, but perhaps the intersectionality between the two here um, is all of our different relationships to it. So both the different relationships that exist to land, um, be it from the native voices or from these, these very um, intertwined kind of pioneer histories, um, but also how that translates so well to the relationships that we see today with the church, um, be it with LGBTQ, you know, children um, or, or, you know, members or, or former members um, or people who have had, you know, difficult or different experiences with the church um, and kind of how those those kind of fraught histories or, or traumas that have ex been experienced within um, are also kind of represented or manifested in similar ways um, and that the two kind of represent each other. Um, nicely or relate to one another nicely. Um, and I think that that's, that's definitely a theme um, or at least something that I sensed within the stories that are within this You know, one, this one essay that really addresses that beautifully, almost exactly the way that you're tracing it, um, John Bennion's piece on his ancestors, just sort of back and forth, back and forth, failures and 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 semi-successes, but the family commitment to ranching in the West Desert. Um, and he, and John Benning is so frank and so articulate about the way his ancestors made terrible mistakes that wiped out huge swaths of, of delicate landscape that, and yet his family's commitment to staying in the project and, not just his families, but but that whole that whole community. Very very different people. Very different relations. Um, little 
groups, he calls them archipelago, <laughs> of communities that speak among each other and influence each other. And that he really talks about the way that the landscape changed, divided, created other kinds of relationships and connections among small Mormon communities trying to make that desert blossom as a rose <laughs> in certain ways. He, he writes about that really, really well. Michael McLean writes very beautifully about, um, you know, the very slow and painful and necessary conversion of so many Utahns during the, the atomic bomb testing on that gradually circling and coming back around to being institutionally committed to preserving landscape over other priorities and that the, the experience of the landscape itself does, does affect us, does alter us. If we can, if we can, if we can keep it up on that. So I do think, again, so many of our Latter-day Saint storytelling traditions are about the past and about preserving and cherishing a past. I hope we can move so many of them toward, okay, but what are we creating in the future? Something that's maybe not foregone, that's not entirely prophesied, that might be a surprise to all of us, that might not look what we, the way we imagined it, as we learn from the landscape instead of, instead of 19th century traditions that that don't meet, don't meet the requirements of a place like this. I'm going to speak to, oh, did, no, 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 go, go. I was just, just speak to, to a couple of things you said, Karen, there about, um, first of all, looking to the past. If you look at Lisa Madsen Rubilar's piece mm -hmm. about Minerva Teichhardt, it was so timely without us realizing that it would be timely. At first we thought, oh, this is going to be uh, a present, you know, a documentation of something that will be lost from the Manti temple. And then when that shifted and those, those will be preserved, um, her essay speaks to, again, the complexity of, of Minerva Teichhardt as an artist who didn't necessarily see herself as an environmentalist, but was, was documenting her own life and that connection to the land. But I also think that what you're saying, Karen, is absolutely right, that there's, you know, what, what, what next future can we imagine? And I, I think that notion of, of, of an imagination going forward is, is very vital for, for, what, for, for our religion, I think, and for our faith, um, for the faith and, and the religion. But just, I mean, not just for the faith and the religion, but going forward in general. What do we imagine for the future, for our children, for this land? Um, what will it look like? And I, I think it's been an interesting, of course, last year of what's of what we have just what we've gone through with the pandemic. And prior to this, the dystopian novel and the dystopian view of the world was becoming really popular. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd sort of tease my daughter. I said, in a way, they're ideal because who goes first, your teachers and your parents, <laughs> and then it's just teenagers. Uh -huh. <laughs> And they're in charge. <laughs> they're trying to survive, but they're still in charge. But we've gone through this strange year. And I think there's, I think there's a, a desire to be outside, a desire for the natural world, a desire to get away from the technology and the cubicle, you know, wherever we have been sort of, you know, uh, part of before. There's a return now, I think, to that natural world. So, so what do, if we look back at um, our writers, what do they collectively imagine 
this future will be for each of them in the, with that, that shared heritage, but going forward through their various spaces. You know, if I can speak really quickly back to maybe Madison's question in another way and, and follow through on what Danny's saying too. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to sometimes I want, I want to tell stories efficiently without giving too much background, but I, I didn't raise my children Mormon. Um, and yeah, their first cousins and their grandparents, so much, so many of their, so many of their family and certainly a lot of their community that they're, they're, they're very much aware of their heritage and of their, uh, you know, I mean, to a certain point, but it, it's kind of mysterious to my kids. They're, they're all in their twenties and thirties now. And as they grew up, in the heart of of the place their ancestors deposited them, you know, the place that they mm. belong to, at least in the sense that they have inherited this complex immigration colonizing legacy, but this is the only home they know. And I think for me, when I was growing up, the, the, the fact that we lived in Utah in these mountains was absolutely bound up in my sense of God gave us this. We're the special people who belong to it. I love the landscape because of those reasons, because it made me feel home, you know, and chosen and picked. And every beautiful thing was was because because Heavenly Father gave it to us. And that was that was actually a very wonderful sensation for me as a child. And and losing that or gradually sort of separating my religion from my love of landscape was actually because of that really complicated Um and it, it, it's funny over the years as I watch my children, you know, just bond with this landscape in very, very powerful ways, not just casually, but my, my son is, has, you know, committed his whole career to environmental issues on the ground, you know, in the mountains, you know, really doing the job. All of, all of my children have found the desert have found the mountains have found, you know, their sense of it and have become extremely conscious about how to interact, how to be there, how to not, you know, it matters to them profoundly. And it's, it's been interesting for me to watch and to see, in fact, for a while, I, Danny knows I've went through a little bit of a crisis cause I'm retiring and I thought, you know, I'm finally just getting out of here. And I really thought seriously about buying a place in Colorado and telling my kids, okay, we're, we're going away. We're finding, you know, and all of them looked at me like I was completely crazy. <laughs> they, there's like, this is, this is our home. This is where we live. We're from Utah. We belong in Utah. And it's not that they don't go other places, but you know, for me, it's been incredibly powerful to see how the descendants of generations across the family tree of Mormon or German Lutheran Im immigrants to the West have found their sense of absolute unequivocal, unquestionable place because of the landscape. And to them, it doesn't have the same connections it does for me. And it, it goes back in a certain way. They are desert rats because they have Mormon ancestry. You know, they this is a gift that their ancestors gave them. And it's a complicated gift. They we don't answer to it in the ways maybe we're supposed to, but maybe the very best thing this legacy gave a whole generation of writers, 
thinkers, people who live in the Great Basin now, no matter what our ancestry is, is that sense of the land is the land is our grounding. And if we can if we can come to a point where we know that, believe that, accept it, and see that as our common cause, that's the best definition of religion I could possibly think of. Yes, I big agree with that. Um, I, uh, the, when you were speaking, it, it reminds me of the, actually one of the final paragraphs in the, in the collection, uh, that, uh, you wrote Karen. Um, and I will try and read it. I'm not the best reader out louder, <laughs> not great at it. Um, but, uh, I thought I'd read it here, um, because I think it, it's very relevant to the conversation we've had. And I think it might be a good way to kind of close out the conversation. Um, you, uh, just for context, uh, you go to a, a, you've been asked to attend a girls camp, um, when you, you take your six year old daughter with you, uh, and, uh, that you feel a little bit out of place because, you know, you're not necessarily, uh, part of the center of the community. Um, and you relate how on the final or the, the penultimate, the penultimate night of girls camp, uh, is the testimony night where you're, you're, you, everyone bears testimony around a fireside, which honestly, you know, is, has uh, some resonance with the conversation we've had here so far. Um, uh, and you, you talk about how you and your daughter are back at your tent, I think, uh, and you're just sitting down to read a book and yet you can hear, you can, you, 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 you have an awareness of the, the, the testimony meeting going on and you say, um, what the hell? My first people are down at the fire, bearing witness of what they know without a shadow of a doubt. I know that this ceremony will permit inscrutable countenances to break into sobs, tumbling words through streaming tears. Down there at the bonfire, my first people unite in an ecstasy of religious emotion. Touch something raw and holy that only arises precisely here. Words that mean something transcend beyond their recitations. I know this because they are, beyond the heaves and, and national transformation, my tribe, and I will claim them, but never again my only people. When I, I, I loved that a lot because there's just, uh, there's just something about it that resonates with me a lot, that, that they are my tribe, they are my first people, and I will claim them. Uh, do, you have, do you have any, uh, do you want to speak to that, that final, par- uh, final paragraph of yours? <laughs> sure. Um- they are my first tribe and deeply I, 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 the, the core of my identity. And I haven't always been grateful for that, but I have never been able to escape that. And I think I'm old enough now that I don't really need to. I, they, they, I, I have um, maybe, maybe because I'm a, I'm a writer, maybe because I'm a novelist, maybe because I'm interested in character. I don't need people to be perfect. I'm, I'm much more interested in the ways we're screwed up, hurt, traumatized, complicated, self-contradictory, and still, you know, sometimes can stop and stand on this planet and be very, very grateful we're here in all five of our senses. And I admire anyone who's managed that generation by generation, group by group, person by person. And this, this is, this is what, as I said, it's what made me, it's what made my children, whether or not we fully understand all of the impact. And it's what, it's what, for whether this is good for the rest of the planet and the rest of the people on it or not, for me, it's what planted me here in a landscape that I love as part of who I am. I don't just mean landscape, a whole world, climate, planet, moment by moment, 
Um, and I'm, I'm willing to stand in some kind of alliance, whatever alliances I can, I can make with that. And one more thing, you might be interested that, uh, the little six-year-old in that essay is, uh, wrote an S wrote a piece in this, in this anthology as well. Amelia England, um, her little cottonwood stock. So speaks in some ways from another angle on that. So it's also wonderful to see, you know, how articulately and how beautifully, not just my children, but what my children represent and the thousands of students I have encountered and listened to and this place belongs to you and your generation. And we'd better make it a good gift. And you'd better make it a good gift for the people who take it up beyond you. It's powerful. Thank you. Danielle, any final thoughts? I think, Karen, you just said that so beautifully. And I think it goes back to that notion of the circle of belonging, that um, that that the, the circle has to be much wider than it has been. And hopefully this anthology, to a certain extent, demonstrates that. That this, that there is there's an expansiveness there, particularly in talking about the future and what what are some possibilities for that and the the threats to that as well, and 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 the threats for uh, and, and what it means to exist on this planet from variety of the cultures and perspectives, but in particular one that actually was started in the natural world. It started in a in a in a place that that regardless of one's belief was identified as a sacred grove and started in the natural world. So, so the natural world is really our world. It's us. <laughs> we are, as we are, we are the natural world. That is, that is who we are. We are, we are part of that. And you know, human Lewis has a, a, an essay toward the end. Um, I've known him for several years and, you know, it, it was, to me, it was just this moment of just pure, grace and gratitude to read his story and to hear his, his, his closure was, you know, the Navajo, the, the Dine people say that all things will return to beauty. I mean, the whole story is about reconciling a converted Mormon and a, and a Dine heritage and reconciling that spirituality and its monstrosities and beauties. And again, I know Cumin, but to read his story so directly and that, and that affirmation, that's not something I think I could ever have said. I don't think that's something I could, I even have the right to speak or to say, but for Cumin's voice to close with that, that beautiful, beautiful Dine phrasing. Again, another of the many pieces, I say read them, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, the, the best thing about putting this together was hearing so many other voices. You know, let me just shut up and listen and draw those voices forward and give them the space that they deserved. And every one of them is so, is so rewarding and so generous. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Abby, any final thoughts, any final questions, anything? I just want to say thank you. Uh, I, I just, I love what you just said, Karen, about, kind of shutting up and, and listening. I feel like sometimes I am the ghost in the corner on these podcasts because I just enjoy so much the guests that we bring on. And, um, that 
you know, that includes you both. So thank you very much for um, expressing this, but also bringing together these wonderful voices um, so that we have it for, you know, years to come um, as a reference point for how we create inclusivity and, and diversity within this conversation as well. So thank you. You know, we got 10 more volumes probably before we yes. like even begun to, to include <laughs> who we need to include, but this is a great start. Yeah. Uh, so we need, we need the second edition. We need to, yes, <laughs> there's so much more out there. It's just, just a starting point for this discussion. And thank you so much. So the, the book is called Blossom is the Cliff Rose, Mormon Legacies and the Beckoning Wild. Um, it, it's published with Tory House Press and it comes out on June 8th. Is that correct? Yes. All right, cool. We're really looking forward to it. We'll make sure we uh, include a link for a pre-order in the uh, in the show notes so that people can click over and get that. And with that, thank you guys so much for being on uh, Briscoe and Fireside Summer Sessions. Mm-hmm.